So I want to propose some things to you that I think are very interesting. And some of them are just kind of interesting and fun and just kind of get your brain thinking. Uh, and some of them are universally true. So I like to mix those in because sometimes I just want you to go, huh, that's interesting. In 2 Peter 3, 8, it says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Should we overlook the fact? Okay, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. I find that interesting that not only does it say that, that one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day, that time is irrelevant to God and that he exists outside the concept of time. I find that interesting that he says, but do not overlook this fact. First, he calls it a fact and he says, don't overlook it. That it's important for the church to understand the way in which God operates outside of the way man operates. So I found it interesting. One of the reasons why I didn't take on the evolution and creation, I want you to understand because I've had people ask me this question, is because I feel like we get caught up in straw man arguments many times. And so we'll get caught up in uh, young earth, old earth theology, and we'll talk about, you know, uh, scientists say that the universe is 13.5 billion years old. Scientists say the earth is 4.5 billion years old. And if some of you are young earth people, we, uh, young earth will say it's 6,000 years old, or they'll say that it's, it's 12,000 years old. There's usually those two numbers thrown out there as, as that. And we'll have these argument based on that. And here's the problem is that both of those uh, concepts require some belief. They require faith to accept them. Uh, they, they have uh, information that is required to add into them in order to complete that as a scientific theory, okay? We, we, there has to be some belief in that that's added in. None of them are complete yet uh, in in in. In science, with evolution, all that, there is no trans, there is no, um, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's no fossil record of transition, okay? There's no fossil record where they begin to transition into other animals, so we don't have that, so they have to take that by faith. And so when we're talking about the age of the earth and that subsequent thing, the, the reason why I call it a straw man argument is because I can go through the Bible and find scripture that gives both of those positions validation, depending on how I read them based on the information that I have. And so if one doesn't necessarily cancel out the other one. The, there's nowhere in the Bible that says, this is how old it is. There's a, a creation account, and I have to make some assumptions to get there. And so one of the reasons why I'm not, I'm not giving you a position on that is because I don't need to challenge the scientific community and the world in order for the Word of God to be true. And so if the Word of God can be true either direction, why am I going to spend my time fighting that? Finding out that the universe is 13.5 billion years old, if it is, does not change the word of God and it doesn't cancel out anything the word of God said. So I'm just not going to make that argument because I don't feel like it's a good use of your time. But it is interesting. Let me give you just one kind of example of something very interesting before we get deep into it, okay? I just want to make this kind of interesting. 1,000 years both ways. Interesting that science say that the earth is uh, 4.5 billion years old. That's what science says. Um, and the universe is 13.5. There are seven days of creation that God created the heavens and the earth, and there are 24 hours in a day. Interesting enough, see, I believe that God leaves all these cool little, uh, what 
uh, what you would refer to as Easter eggs, all these little hints, all these little secret things, layers deep, where you just go, huh, did you do that on purpose? Like, did you leave these like nuggets for us to uncover as interesting little um, side confirmations to us? And so you ever start studying the word of God and you start seeing number patterns and things that, that overlap and you start realizing that God is trying to say something and we're just not smart enough to comprehend what it is, but you know there's something there? A little bit like a puzzle or a hidden mystery. You know, the word of God says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the honor of kings to search it out. Okay, and that we're to search out concealed his, uh, mysteries that are hidden in the word. And not all of them are mysteries, but some of them are interesting. Let me give you an interesting fact of the day is that there's seven days of creation, 24 hours in a day for the story of creation. Now you would say, well, it was only six days. No, the seventh day he rested, that's a part of the story. Okay, so seven days in completion until he called it done, done, done. So seven days of creation, 24 hours in a day. If you, if you know your math, then of course you already know that seven to the 24 power, of course, right? This one's obvious for everyone in the room. Seven to the 24th power uh, adds up to or multiplies to 4.5 billion years. Did you know that? If you take seven days, 24 hours in a day, so seven to the 24th power, it's 4.5 billion years. And if you take into account that we have a trinity, three gods in one, in the middle of creation, and God said, let us make man in our image, not let me make man. He said it in the plural. And you factor in the, the trinity in creation, three times the 4.5 is 13.5 billion. Those are the numbers. So they say the earth is that. And I just wonder if a God who spoke this word, spoke Genesis 2,000 years ago, and science is just now uncovering or, or theorizing all of those sorts of things, I wonder if that's God's cute way of just leaving a little testament that says, I'm still in this. And I wrote it at the exact right moment for that. Just an Easter egg. Does it make sense? Some of you are like, I don't understand the Easter egg thing. It's a little hidden nod to something. If you ever watch a movie and there's a, um, an actor that does a guest appearance, right? You watch something like the Hulk and the original, original uh, Lou Ferrigno shows up in a scene as a security guard, but they don't announce him. He's just there. And you're like, oh, that's the original Hulk guy. It's an Easter egg, like a little hidden thing for you to find in the background, okay? And so uh, I think God left a lot of those little Easter eggs that helps us to, uh, to, to understand his word in a deeper way. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that I do in this science series is I like to take on the big guy. I like to take on the one that is most respected. I like to go right after the hardest science. And the last time I did this, I showed a video of Stephen Hawking's and I made arguments against his idea that there is no God. And so he does a documentary uh, about Into the Universe, Stephen Hawking's Into the Universe on the Discovery Channel. And in that, he talks about whether or not there needs to be a God to bring about creation. And he argues that. I showed the video last time. I can't do that because they'll pull it off and they'll kill our life. Okay, so we'll just keep moving through it, but I'll quote it for you. Um, and I showed that to you and I made my argument against it. So the last time I made this argument, about a few weeks after I made the argument, everyone said, you need to send this video to Stephen Hawkins. He'll repent and become a believer. And a couple of weeks later, he died. So I have been accused since then of killing him. I don't know that he ever saw my video. Please stop trying to get me uh, charged with murder. Thank you. I appreciate it.
Okay, but Stephen Hawkins did this documentary called Into the Universe, and he describes the universe as through his lens of understanding. And, and he said this about uh, black holes or the Big Bang. He said that uh, in the Big Bang, before the Big Bang happened, time did not exist. This is theoretical science of physics, where the top leading cosmologists in the world says that in the Big Bang, there was no time. So they believe that the universe was a hot, soupy, condensed ball of gases and, and other things. And in that ball, there was nothing outside of that. There was no universe. That was the entire universe. And inside that, time did not exist because nothing had sprung to light. And we can't look back into it because there was no light. Light was not created yet. It's called the dark ages. And they say that there was no light in that time. Nothing had burst forward. Light had not yet been created. It goes along with our biblical account, doesn't it? In the beginning, the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the surface. There was no light yet in the beginning, but there was something there. So it's funny how Stephen Hawkins still confirms everything that Genesis tells about the creation story. He just doesn't look at the Bible to determine if there's a God. And what's interesting about that is he says inside of it, there is no time. So we continue to move along with the concepts of God. But here's the interesting thing. So he says, there's no time in the big bang, but he says, as you move closer to a black hole, time will begin to slow down. If you were to send a clock into a black hole, as it got closer and closer to the black hole, time would slow down. In fact, they've talked about using black holes in order to travel great distances around the universe because you could get there in a slowed down time environment. And so it wouldn't take as long to get there. They don't know what'll happen if you go in, but they believe 100% that as the clock enters the black hole, time itself will stop. That in that black hole is outside our universe's laws and time itself will stop. That's Stephen Hawkins. He says the time will stop when you go in there. And that in the Big Bang, there is no time. And what's interesting is he uses that to theorize and he says, let me see if I have the quote here. It says, when people ask me if a God created the universe, I tell them that the question itself makes no sense. Time didn't exist before the Big Bang. So there is no time for God to make the universe in. It's like asking directions to the edge of the earth. The earth is a sphere. It doesn't have an edge. So looking for it is a futile exercise, end quote. And I think it's fascinating. I find it fascinating that Stephen Hawkins is a lifelong atheist. And you, you have to wonder why, but he says this statement. Because there was no time before the Big Bang, there was no time for God to make the universe. If there was no time before the Big Bang, there was no time for the universe to spark to life. If a fire happens, something has to be lit. If there was no time, if nothing was moving because everything was still, because there was no time, time for anything to move, it means there never could have been a moment of tension that exploded everything into existence because there was no millisecond moment where everything snapped. There was no time, there could be no snap. There could be no explosion. There could be no spark. There could be no movement. There was no time for anything to interact with each other. So outside of time, the Big Bang is not possible. So either Stephen Hawkins is wrong that there was no time, or he was right that there was no time. I think he's actually right. 
I think there was no time, just like him, before the Big Bang. What I believe is, is that we have a situation that defies the laws of nature. You know what that's called when something doesn't go by the laws of nature? Supernatural. Supernature, something beyond nature. See, we serve a God who is not subject to time. And so the only explanation for what could have even sparked that would have been God acting outside of time because a thousand years is one to him and one is a thousand. Time is irrelative to him. And he moved outside of time to initiate creation. And so Stephen Hawkins' own argument about why there is not a God proves conclusively there has to be. There had to be something that did not obey the laws of physics and creation in order to spark creation itself. It could not have happened according to the laws. You cannot have what comes up must go, uh, go down in our world break its own law. You can't. Not on earth. There's no way to break that. So I find it very fascinating that even understanding that, so you can see the skewed perspective is that the, the desperation is this, is that he studied the whole universe and never picked up the word of God and just read. All he would have had to read was Genesis 1. And he would have seen everything he needed to know to say, everything I've ever learned is right here, written by these desert wandering nomads from thousands of years ago. And I find it fascinating that Stephen Hawkins decided to stay an atheist. And here's what's even more fascinating is that when he died, he had his funeral at a church. It was held at the famous St. Mary's in Cambridge. And his family said that they just wanted to make sure his funeral was inclusive to everyone. I find that fascinating that one of the most outspoken atheists that said there's no reason for a God had his funeral at a church. So I want to talk to you about some of the science a little bit different than sound. I want to talk to you about a science called epigenetics. Everyone say epigenetics. You guys are like, oh, I don't know that's a big word, okay? So we, we not only have DNA sequencing inside of us, but we have something called genetics. Genetics are passed down from parent to child, okay? Uh, your genes, you've heard that before, right? Not these ones, but the genes inside of you. That those genes affect a, a lot of um, uh, how you look, how you act, how you think, how you talk. There's a lot that goes into the genes, your eye color. And, you know, they're talking about manipulating genes and programming children. You've heard that before, right? They're going to, they're, you know, you, they can manipulate the genes and be like, you want a kid with blue eyes or brown eyes? We'll just change those genes just a little bit. The gene expression, and we're able to give you a, a, a child. We can program that child. So that, that's what gene expression is. But epigenetics is the study of how those genes change and uh, uh, are manipulated with environment or factors outside the control of just genetic uh, reproduction, okay? And so um, uh, studying the biological basis for those effects um, in, in humans, all right? And so uh, there was a study done by a doctor named Kerry Ressler and his colleague Brian Diaz, and they opted to study epigenetics inherited in laboratory mice trained to fear the smell of something called acetophenanin, okay? It's a chemical, the scent of which has been compared to basically uh, cherries and almonds, so like kind of an amaretto type of smell, okay? Cherries and almond, 
and what they did is this. They, they, they took this, these lab mice and they wanted to see what the genetic response was, fight, flight, fear, uh, how, you know, whether our genetics were changed by what we experienced and how that passed on to the next generation. Now, as, as a parent, I've passed on life lessons to my children based on things I've been through, but I pass them on verbally. So I taught them based on my life experience. So they carry, uh, maybe, maybe you'd say, oh, you know, like I kind of I kind of have fear like my mom had fear, and, and that's because she was always afraid, and I learned that behavior. So there's a difference between learned behavior and genetic behavior. And so they wanted to do a study to see what part was learned behavior and what part was a genetic behavior. Uh, you would call that uh, uh, natural instinct. Okay, an instinct behavior that's built into you, of a survival instinct, okay? And so studying that, uh, they studied these mice and they would emit this smell, okay? We'll just call it almonds. And so they'd emit this almond smell into the cage at the same time as they would zap the little mice. Zzz, right, little, zzz, little shock. I, I don't even know, how, how cute would that be? A little shock, little micey shock collars. Like, how do you even manufacture that? I don't know how they did, but right? So they would smell this almond smell and then they would shock them. And so pretty soon the mice began to associate the smell with the pain. And so anytime they would pump the smell into their cage, the mice would exhibit a fear response. Rightfully so, right? They've been trained to fear that that smell is associated with danger and pain. Something is going to happen to them. Now, naturally, if they have offspring from that, those offspring are going to learn that behavior from their parents, right? The smell's going to happen. The parents going to have a fear response. The babies are like, I don't know what we're afraid of, but let's freak out. Like, and they're going to learn that behavior and pass it on. Well, what's interesting is that what they did in the science experiment is they would, uh, when the when the mice began to reproduce, they would separate out the parents from the children. So the children never had a day of activity with the parents. So there was no ability to give them a learned response. And what they found is, is that the next generation would have a fear response when they smelled the almond smell. They would pump the almond smell into the cage and the mice, even though they had never once been electrocuted, never once had anything happen, never been told by mama, they would have a fear response. What's interesting about that is, is they bred the mice again. And the grandchildren also had a fear response. Hmm. What does that have to do with that? Exodus 34, 7 and about five other verses say this. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin and that will be no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. So there's this scripture, several of them, in fact, where God reemphasizes over and over again, iniquity, sin, disease, something negative being transferred onto the children's children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. Now, what's interesting about that is how precise God's word is to the scientific discoveries we've made in this century. Here's what's interesting. The scientists found that without fail, every single time, 
the fear response was, was triggered and passed on to the grandchildren, to the third generation every single time. It was guaranteed it went down to the third generation. What was not guaranteed was the fourth. The fourth was hit or miss. Sometimes it went to the fourth, sometimes it didn't. How interesting that the word of God says unto the third and to the fourth generation. That's pretty easy to say. It's guaranteed it's the third. It may or may not go to the fourth. And so and every time you see this scripture listed in scripture, it always says to the third and to the fourth. So it can travel to the fourth. It doesn't necessarily have to. It always goes to the third. Guaranteed 100% to the third. And this doesn't just apply to things like fight or flight. It doesn't just apply to danger. But actually, they found that epigenetics plays a, a, a part in uh, transferring and changing of genes in poor diet choices before a person even reproduces. Uh, they, they had people who experienced famine. They studied people who had experienced a famine. Uh, for instance, children who were conceived during a harsh winter famine that was in the Netherlands in the 1940s. Wartime famine. They had a massive famine in the 1940s in the Netherlands, and they found that their children, because they had uh, eaten so poorly, they found that their children had an increased risk of diabetes, heart disease, and other conditions. And so things that the parents experienced before reproduction passed on genetically to the children. They found that also with people that live gluttonous lives, that eat too much and have health problems, that their children are at higher risk for those things. They're passed down, and every time they've studied this, they've found that it's lasted guaranteed to the third generation and maybe the fourth. And so we see the Word of God be very specific about the iniquities being passed on. And so that's why a lot of times you have these genetic response. It is not necessarily a learned behavior. It's a genetic response. Now, I just want to leave you with hope because that sounds kind of hopeless all of a sudden, right? You guys are thinking about some of your parents and you're like, oh boy, sorry. We serve a God who can fix broken DNA. We serve a God who can fix our gene expression. We serve a God, I told you, that can heal my broken disc, that can heal a titanium knee, that can, that can stop cancer, deaden its tracks, and shrink tumors. We serve a God who can change the physical properties of our lives. How interesting that God says, I'll visit the iniquity, the bad stuff, onto the third and the fourth generation. But his promise is this, but I'll bless a thousand generations. His blessing way outlasts the negative that can come with it, and God can sever and break that over you. You are not subject to generational curses when you have God. The blessing will way outlast the curses that are on your life. And so your parents may have instituted a curse on your life. There may be a genetic curse in your DNA structure. But God can reverse that, fix that, and heal you of a trauma you ever had. Can I just say something? Look, I'm just going to be real, real honest. I am a Jew. Let me say something to you for a second. You can apply this to your race. You can apply this to your past. You can apply this to your childhood. You can buy, apply this to your class, to your standing in the world. Apply it to however you want. I'm not making a, a claim here. I'm telling you some truth from the Word of God. Can I just say something that's true? That will help you. You could be offended by this. But as a Jew, I had to face the reality of this. My grandparents 
fled Austria to get away and came to America to, they had to flee to save their lives. I know lots of other Jews that had parents, grandparents, great-grandparents that died in the Holocaust. That's a real thing. And because of that, they've studied the epigenetics of Jews. And they found that there are anxieties and fear that are in Jews that have relatives that either had to flee or relatives that died in the Holocaust. I want you to understand this. There is a natural fear of authority and that authority is out to get them built up in my genetic code. Not anymore because Jesus healed me, but in my, my, my racial genetic code for many, many people that look like me, that have my blood. So I want you to understand this, is that that's in my genetic code. And so there's a natural disposition to fear the authority in front of you or the government that's built up. So there's a higher percentage. When they study Jews that have had family members in the Holocaust, Hebrews, they find, and Israelis, they find that there's a higher percentage of fear and there's way higher percentage of anxiety. And it's undiagnosed anxiety, meaning that they can't pinpoint its location. They, that the person isn't having a stressed out life, but they're under anxiety and they don't know where it comes from. So they are living in the anxiety of ancestors that went through something they've never experienced themselves. And so they live with a rose-colored idea, a filter on their life of what others may or may not be thinking or acting towards them because of something grandparents went through that they never personally experienced ever. And even if the situation has changed, even if the situation has resolved itself, there still is an underlying premise of anxiety and fear that it may happen. And so I, I believe that some of the, the tension in our nation across the world in varying different societies and cultures can be attributed to an epigenetic response. That when you look at people who have experienced atrocities, genocides like us in, in multiple countries, in multiple environments. So I'm not just making one claim here or another claim. I'm just saying that the fact is, is that there is an epigenetic response, an iniquity that's passed down from one generation to another, that's planted in our DNA that we need to overcome. And so the reality is, is there's something, a false perception, a fight or flight mechanism that kicks in trying to help us with a survival instinct that puts us into fear. You process that. I'm processing it through my own culture. But that's the science, and it's been proven over and over again. So the good news, the hope there is, is that God can break those epigenetic responses. He can break broken DNA, and he can bless us for a thousand generations. And the good news is, is that the good traits, the correct traits, science finds that those will last generationally beyond what they can count. They can't count how long those good survival instincts, those good instincts and characteristics. You ever wonder how like a cat comes out of the womb knowing how to go to the bathroom and your dog doesn't? Right? They just know. 
They don't ever have to be raised around mama. Nobody has to teach them. They have these instincts built in them to do certain acts, to take care of certain... There's just instincts built in, into it, to animals that function in a certain way. A beaver never has to grow up around its parents to all of a sudden decide, I should chop down that tree and, 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 make, and build a dam. They will do that regardless. And so animals have these instincts that are built into their genetic code to tell them how to respond to their environment. And those things do not just last for the third and fourth generation. They last the life for thousands of generations. And so we have a code built in us to sustain the good and remove the bad. I want you to understand that. So when someone says, God's gonna visit iniquity on us, understand what God is talking about that there is a genetic response for us to adapt to our environment that's built into humanity. And when sin entered the world, it tainted our ability to adapt in a positive manner. But God is so kind and merciful that he made sure it couldn't stick forever. And then he entered in the idea that we can be healed, touched, set free, delivered of those things, amen? So I don't know what your parent faced, your grandparent faced, or something where you're like, yeah, you know, all of us, that's just, that's how we do. You don't have to do that. You can sever that bond, break that tie, and heal that genetic response. And if you ate too much food before you reproduce, we can fix that too. And, and that's a true response. One of the things I told Rachel when she was pregnant with my boys, just to kind of sell this before I move on. When she was pregnant with my boys, I said, at the time, she didn't like sushi. I know, I know, I know. I already said I do, though. I couldn't go back. So she didn't like sushi. She didn't want anything to do with sushi. And I begged her. I said, please, if you love me, will you please, while you're pregnant, just suffer and eat some sushi a few times, please. And she's like, why do you want me to eat sushi while I'm pregnant? And I'm like, because my dad and I used to go for sushi, that was the one thing we did. That was our thing. And we would go for sushi. And I want to be able to take my boys for sushi. That's going to be our thing. And this isn't a time in Oklahoma where nobody ate sushi, okay? Way ahead of the curve, okay? There wasn't no sushi place. It wasn't, it wasn't trending. And so I'm like, please eat the sushi because I want my boys to like sushi. And if you eat it while you're pregnant, they'll like it. See, your mama didn't eat sushi. That's why you don't like it, Pastor Isaac. Can't, we can't all be perfect. Okay, so... And so she ate the sushi, and by about the third time, she's like, you know, I really like this stuff. I think I'm going to eat it more. And so she ate it with all three of the kids, and she loved it, and all of my kids love sushi. We go to sushi. They all like sushi because I made sure that they got an epigenetic response. Okay. I was terrified though. She starts like puking and hates it. Then there, mm, then I'm up a creek, man. I'm never taking my kids for sushi. Fine. I'll just eat all the sushi myself. That's fine. All right. So there's not enough sushi in the world just for me to consume. There's not, I've tried. I can eat, I can eat a lot. Yeah. Only one time did it break me. All right. So, so, so the epigenetic response is they all like it. So what you do, so there's a truth to that. There's a scientific principle behind that, that God has put these hidden mysteries into his word that science is only now beginning to understand. Isn't that amazing? All right. So I want you to understand, I'm, we're not going completely off the map here. So we have black holes and we have almonds. I don't... It's a mismatch of science. I get it. 
We're getting off the topic of sound today just for a minute, but I'm not going to leave light alone in that. We got black holes. We got no light. We got no time. But what happens when we start looking at what light really is? We know that in the, before the Big Bang, scientists says there's no time because there was no light. And so the absence of light means there's no time. And we know what light looks like. You can see me right now. I'm illuminated. Now, here's what's interesting is that, is that God always refers to light in the sense of also a parallel to wisdom. To be enlightened is to have wisdom or to have knowledge, an increase of knowledge and wisdom. So those two always play a part together. And so I think you'll find this fascinating is that there are 28 different gemstones that we would call precious stones, that we've identified as precious stones. Um, and in the last century, we've learned that these precious gemstones respond under two different categories. And you don't have to remember this, but they classify as... No, we're going to have a test afterwards. You have to remember this. You're gonna write, you need to write this down. Um, they, they classify as either anisotropic or isotropic. Okay, so those are the two classifications of gemstones. Uh, let me just say it real simple. Shiny, not shiny. Okay, plain English, I'm, I'm trying to help, anisotropic or isotropic, and only recently have scientists discovered this, and in fact, if you look at the gemstones originally, and you had to guess, you would never know. In fact, let me just say this, the difference between them is one passes light through them and reflects the light, the other one does not allow light to pass through it at all and it's completely dark. It will not allow a light to go through it. Let me give you an example. Um, uh, light passes through or light doesn't pass through on a diamond, which would you say? Pass through? It does not pass through. I know, right? That doesn't make any sense, does it? I'll explain. But if I were to say to you an opal, does it pass light through or does it not pass light through? You would think it doesn't, correct? Can't, but it actually is a pass-through. Okay, so it's, it's anisotropic versus isotropic. And only recently have scientists discovered this, that what they do is they shine what's called pure light at it. Ooh, I like that word, right? Pure light. Don't give me no impure light. I don't need no impurities in my light. I don't even know how you get impure light. Like tainted light just a little bit too yellow, it needs to whiten up. Like, I don't know what, but it's called cross-polarized light. And they consider it to be the purest form of light. And when they shine this cross-polarized light, which has only been able to do in, in this century, do we have the equipment or the ability to actually purify light and send it through at its pure form? What do you think will be in heaven? Pure light or, or, or polluted light? Probably pure. So cross polarized light, which could uh, uh, identify which stones allow light to pass through or hold them, whether they're anisotropic or isotropic, okay? When viewed in the cross-polarized light, anisotropic stones produce a colorful array of the entire rainbow. Beautiful light. In fact, you may think it resembles something uh, that you're familiar with, reflecting all the colors of the rainbow, whereas isotropic stone lose all their color and appear black. 
I'm going to read this to you out of Revelations 21, verses 19 through 21. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manners of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, and the second sapphire, and the third was a chaldani, and the fourth was an emerald, the fifth was a sardonyx, and the sixth was sardius, and the seventh was a, a, a crystallite. And the eighth is a barrel, and the ninth is a topaz, and the tenth is a, uh, looks like a dinosaur to me, a crystal sy- a syropius. I don't even know how to say that one. And the, <laughs> that's just like a really shiny dinosaur. I don't know. He's bling dinosaur. That's what it is. And the eleventh, <laughs> some of you are like, I want one. The eleventh is a jacinth, and the twelfth is an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, every, uh, every, uh, several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, and it was transparent glass. Revelations 21, 19 through 21. But I do have a picture of the breastplate that the priest wore, and I'll show that to you as an example. Now, here's why I didn't use this scripture as an analogy, is because in Hebrew culture, they list the stones off that were on the, pre- uh, the priest breastplate. This was a breastplate that the priest wore, and each one of them were subs- uh, subscribed with the 12 tribes of Judah. And the problem is, is that some of the stones in Hebrew were not 100% sure what they actually, uh, what stones they were. There is debate among what the, uh, uh, the translation would be and what stones they would represent. Now, why we're going with, so these are the stones, but each one of them, uh, were, this was a command of God and he lists the stones. We just don't know the translations or there's arguments over whether one's a ruby or a crystallite. And, and so we don't exactly know those, but we do know that the 12 stones of Revelation, the 12 stones, which are the foundation for heaven. Remember, heaven is in a perfect state. It's in pure light. It's in a perfect foundation. What we do know is the 12 stones from Revelation because that was written in Greek and we know exactly the translations of what stones that is today. So it's, it's very familiar to us. So that's why we go with that. These are the same as those other stones. The difference is, is that these, what you're looking at right here, are the stones as cross-polarized light is shined through them. So jasper, amethyst, beryl, topaz. You see all these, the sapphire and the emerald. You see the multiple beautiful array of colors, even though on the outside, some of these stones are milky and not transparent. That's what they look like when you put pure light up to these stones. Isn't that beautiful? Now, the opposite, when you put the pure light up to stones that are isotropic, you get this picture. First one is a diamond. It reflects no rainbow and no light through it. You guys, I've looked at a diamond and I can see like rainbowy colors. Reflected, not passed through. When it absorbs light into it, it turns dark and black. Diamonds are a girl's best friend, huh? You just suck the light. No, I'm not going to go there. (laughs) I didn't finish it, so I can't get in trouble, right? That's how it works, right? Y'all like, we know where you were going. 
So there's no light. Let's go back to the rainbow one. I want you to catch this. These are the beautiful illuminations of heaven. These are the stones and the way we will see them in heavenly places. Now here's where the Bible comes in and names this stuff. There are 28 precious gems. Out of the 28 precious gems, there's only 16 of them that do this. The other 12 do not. They absorb light and reflect black. Do you want to know how many of the 12 out of all 16 that do this, how many of the 12 are actually anisotropic and reflect the light like this? Every last one of them. Every last stone listed in Revelations are all stones that do this. None of them are the other 12 stones that absorb the light and turn black. Do you know what the odds are? The odds of desert wandering nomads being able to accurately guess 12 out of 16 stones in a row and never once include one of 12 stones. Some of you played Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? What is that one where they open the briefcases? Deal or no deal. What are the chances that every single time you will miss the million and get every other number? It's not likely, is it? In fact, I think the odds are like one in 10,000 that you could accurately do this. But the fact that the first time they did it, they got it right, one in 10,000 odds of doing that. It would be the equivalent of me sitting up here with you guys and flipping a coin and 12 times in a row, it was heads every single time. Do you know how rare that is? You know how hard it is to go 12 times? It's possible. It's possible. But that the first time I do it, it will remain the same. And the very first time and the only time I do it, I will get 12 heads in a row. Now, if I flip thousands and thousands and thousands of times, eventually I may come up with 12 times in a row. It may happen. But the very, what are the odds the first and only time I flip it 12 times, it's heads every time. If I flip that coin 12 times in a row and get heads, what would you accuse me of? Oh, okay, thanks. I'm glad you guys think so highly of me. That I was cheating. So how do desert wandering nomads be able to pick out 12 of the 16 stones that do this and all of them are the ones listed in the New Jerusalem in heaven, the ones that reflect perfect light with all the rainbows of the color. You know, here, oh, the colors of the rainbow. Here's what's interesting about that is I find these Easter eggs so fascinating, these wonderful little, little things about what God does. You know, we talked about uh, uh, speaking sound into existence and light and sound and the way that God moves through the universe through light and through sound. I find it wonderful. One of the things I said this morning was how important that worship was to, to seeing the breakthrough, the sound that we emit, what we release, that light and sound are interchangeable. We learned that last week, that light and sound can transfer back and forth. Light transmits sound. Sound is a transmitter into light. And I find it very fascinating that seven days of creation and that there are seven spirits of God listed in the word of God. But what's more interesting is the sound that's produced in all of creation. Do you know if you're a musician, then the, one of the first things you learn is that there are seven chords in every single key. There is a key. There are seven keys and there are seven chords. There's flats and sharps, but all of them have seven notes to them. And it does not go beyond seven, that God created the universe in seven days and that each different day had a different note to it. 
the seven sounds of creation. And I wonder what it would look like if we just began to look more like God. What would happen if we began to actually reflect the light of Jesus? What does it look like when the light of Jesus, who says, I am the light of the world, let there be light, and Jesus was born into the world? He's been here since all of creation. He is God incarnate, but he was manifest in the world when light began. And there is a perfect and pure light that we are called to hold on to, that we are called to reflect. And the question is, is do we reflect it in beauty or do we absorb it and put back black? Do we put back darkness or do we put back the light? Every color reflected. What, what stone are we? It's amazing that God says that we're the crown of creation and that he puts gemstones on the priest and he puts gemstones and the word talks about the precious stones that are placed in the crowns of, in our crowns, that it's so important to God that he would create gemstones to adorn us with. The word of God even talks about adorning us and even adorning the angels in gemstones, that these things matter to him. Is it because they are carriers of pure light? that when the pure light of God is on them, you can see it reflected by them. That only happens when pure light is put on them. It does not happen when something impure is placed. When an impure light hits them, they don't reflect that. It doesn't pass through them. See, here's the difference. A reflection is just a resistance, but when it passes through and it's seen on the other side, that's what it's seen like. And here's the question, what light are you shining? There are people like Stephen Hawkins that is no matter how much the light was shined on him, all he did was just absorb it and stay black. And the question is, when the world looks at you, when people look at you, what are you reflecting? Do they see the beauty of heaven in you? Are you representatives and ambassadors or will you let the stones cry out in your place? Do you let the stones shine for you? Or are you the crown of creation? Are you the gem of his eye? His word has remained true. It's been there. The science of God is real. There's no way that desert wandering nomads knew this much about the way the world works. It took 2,000 years for us to catch up to what the word of God has already been saying this whole time. But he didn't just put it there to prove this is the word of God. He did it there to challenge us to live pure lives, to live holy lives. Why? Because it's rules and regulations? No, he just wants us to be beautiful. He created us in such a way, just like those gems. He created us in such a way that we were made like them. We're anisotropic. We're meant to shine the light of heaven through us. You are, to some people, you are the only beauty they will ever see out of heaven through you. What kind of stone are you? I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what's been shining and beating you down. I don't know what darkness has come over your life, but it only takes the smallest amount of Jesus 
just the littlest amount of Jesus to shine through, break through the darkness, and begin to permeate who you are. And see, that's the beautiful thing that I love about this analogy is that it's not just a reflection, but it's what's actually in us. These stones require the light to actually be absorbed and processed through us for us to reflect it. There is something that God wants to do in you and through you to bring heaven to earth. When Jesus said, our Father who art in heaven, holy would be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. As it is in earth, so shall it be. As it is in heaven, so shall it be in the earth. God was saying it's our responsibility. The prayer of your life should be, Lord, let me reflect you. Let what's in me be you. Let us be one. In John 21, he said, Father, as, they, as we are one, so let them also be one. For when we are one, then the world will know you sent me. They'll see the light of Jesus in you. They'll see the light of heaven. What do they see when it shined on you? Do they see the love of heaven or do they see the attitude of earth? Do they see your frustration or do they see your fortitude? Do they see your commitment to prayer? Or do they just see your complaint? What shines out of you when the darkness kinds tries to come? I, I'm reminded of, you know, as a pastor, I do a lot of counseling. I talk to a lot of people. And I, I can tell you the victorious ones. I can tell you every single time who's going to come through it and have victory. Look, I want to say this to all of you. Every single one of you have come through it. You're sitting here because you came through it. The thing you thought would kill you and destroy you, well, you're here. So ain't none of you get to say that it will kill you and destroy you. Because even if it takes you out of this world, you'll enter into another one when you have Christ as the head of your life. But I can tell you, all of you have come through it, but not everyone comes through well. Some of you lose your shine in the process. And I can tell you, I talk to people all the time, and I'll, I'll walk with people, and I can tell you who will come through it and who won't every single time because of what they reflect back at me. When I give them sound counsel and I give them strategies that I know are effective and work, and their first response is to shoot them down. When their first response is, that won't work because. That won't help me because. And I just can't do that because. Or I give them sound advice and I say, how has that been working for you? Oh, I didn't do it. I can tell you by the way they reflect, they absorb what I say and reflect it back to me on who is going to come through and heaven is going to come through. So I don't... I don't know what you've been through, but I do know the response and the way that you go through it will determine the victory. You want to come through scarred? You want to come through victorious, right? Gideon had an army of 300 and he took on an army that was much bigger. He came out unscarred, a little less. There were some broken pots in the process, but he came through without a broken man. 
The question is, do you want to come through broken or do you want to come through victorious? I don't know about you, but I want every possible advantage in destroying the enemy's plan of darkness over my life. I'm not absorbing any of his negativity. I'm not absorbing any of his problems. I'm not absorbing any of his complaints. I'm not absorbing any of his tricks and I'm not absorbing any of his sin. I'm going to be the righteous reflection of Christ in my life. What you take in, it will be reflected back. How you take it in, how you're built, how you're made, what you allow. Bow your heads with me. Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that the light of Christ shines in us. thank you that your word is true. I thank you that it's a foundation. And I thank you it has power and authority. It's not just true. It has authority in this room. I believe it's authority to break strongholds of the enemy. The darkness of the enemy that has soaked and saturated into our lives. God, I believe that you can break it. I believe that you can change us. I believe that you can break off apathy in us. I believe that you can break off what's been shining on us our entire lives. Whatever's been passed down to us. Lord, I believe you can break off the generational curse of the American church that believe our job is to sit our butts in the seats and check church off a box and remain powerless and have no light to reflect to anyone. I believe that you can make us the head and not the tail, God. Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, some of you, as I talked about the epigenetic responses, as I talked about those things that have been passed down to you, you started thinking about your family situations and what your parents were like or your grandparents were like, and you recognize some things that maybe you inherited that aren't positive traits. And it's time to break that cycle off of your life. It's time to break that from being able to continue to spawn in another generation. Some of you already have children. You can break as a power, as a patriarch and a matriarch of your family, you have power to break those generational curses. So Father, right now, I just want you to, to tell the Lord like you're breaking that generational curse over your family. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's addiction. I don't know if it's depression. I don't know if it's anger. I don't know what that response is that you know has been passed down that still wants to rear its ugly head. And I'm telling you, good manners do not overcome what needs to be healed. You can learn to contain it. You can learn to control it. You can learn how to deal with it. You can have strategies for healthy processing, but it does not remove its ability to be there. We don't want to deal with it. We want it to go in Jesus' name. So Father, right now, as these people in the room are speaking and those online that are watching have declared what that is, as Lord, as you reveal that to them, I break the authority of generational things that have been passed down, iniquity that has been passed down.
We break off every bit of darkness that has been inherited, that has been absorbed into the gem of your creation, into the crown of your creation. And we declare that it's breaking off right now in Jesus' mighty name. And I snap the power of the enemy. I break the power of the enemy in this room right now to hold you in bondage to that generational curse anymore. No more genetic response. I speak to DNA and to genetic genome expressions that have been changed and manipulated to keep you in bondage and I set them straight. And I speak healing into your DNA. Healing into your genetic expression right now in Jesus' name. We want to pray for you. Send us a message with your prayer requests through Facebook or email and let us know how we can pray for you today. Also, let us know how this message impacted your life. I love you. God loves you. Shalom.